0: Are we ready for this, guys? Are we ready? The historical Darkroom episode? I'm stoked. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I'm your host, Michael Omanz, and today I'm talking with Mesh Tabi and Jasper Housk. Mesh and Jasper are the co-founders of Darkroom, a photo editing app for iPhone, iPad, and macOS. In this episode, we talk about the history of Darkroom, its evolution, the way they prioritize their features, and what they look to in the future. Please enjoy episode 44, No Modes. Hello, Jasper and Mejd. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Queen Avond. What's up, Darkroom fam? Despite our best efforts, we finally all got on the same call. Despite our best efforts for nine months, we have found time. Um, also, this
2: time around, it took no time. Everybody was just, yep. Let's I, th- go I think we
1: all gave up. <laughs> we just changed our family schedules around to make this happen. Exactly.
2: <laughs> it's a very important thing, of course.
1: Uh, I'm I'm super stoked. I mean, obviously we had
0: the Jasper episode earlier and we alluded to a Darkroom episode coming down the line. I'm excited you we are able to get this in before the end of the year because I think this is going to be a really nice thing for me to do on a flight to Europe and, um, <laughs> you
2: know, send out Listen time. to us again? And, oh God. And, and, for, and for
0: people to, you know, You'd be surprised, you know. It's uh, it's good holiday entertainment, and you know, with the with all the strikes, like there is no visual
1: entertainment. So you know, people exactly. are, like, and and you clamoring. can never get enough. You can never get enough meshed in your ear, can you? That I mean, <laughs> that is true. That is true. I think we need. I, I think
0: we need a separate meshed episode eventually too. Big, I don't. I don't yeah. want to get shafted here. <laughs> strong, strong opinions with meshed. <laughs> But keeping this one thematic and talking a lot about Darkroom probably makes a ton of sense. We've had an hour plus of Jasper introducing himself, so I would love to, you know, kind of shut hear. up. Yeah, I'll
2: shut up. No worries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that we should start at the genesis of Dark Room. And I think the genesis of dark Room inherently starts with you, Mejd. What was your mindset when you were thinking about starting something like this? Where were you in your life? What was going on?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the the genesis of Darkroom started uh, on a hike in Norway with Brian Gamba, who was your roommate at the time, Michael, and uh, we had both quit Instagram the same week. So I, I'm going to start post Instagram. I don't I don't want to bore you with uh, the career arc, but we had left our jobs. Uh, neither of us knew what we wanted to do, and both of us knew it, we knew it, we didn't want to be at Instagram anymore. So we knew what we did more than we knew what we did want, and we were hiking, and we had spent uh, three months not working. And then quickly realized that the, our gap year was going to be. A gap three months because we started getting bored really quickly and found ourselves just betting on pool at 2 p.m. on Tuesday, realizing that our descent into <laughs> irrelevance was uh, happening faster and faster and faster, and we might as well start something new before we start developing a drinking problem. So that we decided at the time to just get back to basics with what we were doing and get back to kind of craft and get back to being happy and excited and looking forward to opening a laptop again after that kind of died away. And one thing that's always been a chip on my shoulder is. I had never had a relationship with a customer of software that I had built, like a direct one-to-one. I will ask you to open your wallet and give me a dollar for something that I've built and given to you. And I was really craving that very intimate, direct connection between and value validation. You know, like you can be in all the calibration meetings and all the review meetings you want, but until someone opens their wallet and speaks with their money, like that's the most Unfiltered kind of badge of validation you can get for your work. And I really, I was really craving that. So we decided to just make an app. Just, you know, this was 2014 when making an app was still like an exciting, fun thing for you to do, not like (laughs) something people used to do in their 20s, (laughs) 10 years ago. And um, the thing for me at the time was we were hiking and I was taking lots of photos. And, you know, at Instagram, I was pretty exposed to mobile photography as it was transitioning from novelty to social to a serious creative outlet for people. The iPhone 5S at the time was the new exciting device that came out. And I, I found myself just taking tons and tons of photos and wanting to edit those and share those. At the time, your options for tools was Visco and Snapseed. And I was using Visco at the time, much like everybody else on Instagram was. But I just found the workflow of editing beyond one photo at a time to just be really onerous. And I found myself doing the same six, 16 taps in a row for every single photo. And I was just like, I, I really like just a button that does all these 16 taps for me in batch. And that would just save me hours of my week. And so Darkroom just started as that. It was designed to be just like a sample app that allowed you to basically recreate the presets that you liked in other apps and just be able to apply them to a lot of your photos. Started working on that and quickly realized that as iOS 8 was announced and SDK was released, they had added this new Photos SDK that gave you access to iCloud photo library in a way that wasn't possible before. And suddenly I realized this is the right time to do this because now we have access to people's photo library in a way that allows us to navigate it, open it, edit it, export photos, apply batch operations, none of this stuff was possible in the past. So I built a prototype in a few weeks, showed it to a bunch of people, yourself and Jasper included, got some really great feedback. And then Matt Brown at the time, who was a designer who had just also quit Facebook, we, you know, I showed, he was one of the people I showed it to, and he was really jazzed about the idea of kind of a Lightroom in your pocket. Lightroom mobile didn't exist at the time. And we started working on it, launched it a few months later. And long story short, we got promoted by Apple quite heavily at the time when the app store was only changing once a week. And once you got promoted, it was there for a week and we had like massive banners next to Instagram, which was kind of like a nice ego boost for it's like having just left Instagram. So the critical reception was really great when we launched, but what wasn't great was our business acumen and our ability to transfer that um, excitement and initial boost. I think we got a million downloads in the first uh, two weeks, but we couldn't really capitalize on that financially. Then Matt Brown left the company because, you know, he had a family to feed and he couldn't just, you know, dwindle his savings over the next few years chasing this. I actually took a break from on myself as well in 2015. And that's when I went and I did a Kickstarter to write about the Syrian refugee crisis that was happening in Europe at the time and that gave me a full year off of Darkroom while Jasper was still working at Facebook. Me and Jasper had met at Facebook and we had started working together basically for my first week after bootcamp. And then we stayed working closely with each other. We moved around Facebook together. And I think we, you know, Jasper, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we became this designer-engineer combo where it was just like, let's just hitch our wagons to each other and let's just go through our, <laughs> the rest of our yeah. life together. It was like, when it works, it works. Working and well, like well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then yeah. uh, even when I was doing Darkroom, He was giving us feedback and design advice. And when I was doing the book, Jasper was giving me design advice because he has 17 lives and one of them was doing uh, like print (laughs) design and photography and stuff like that. So he was really helpful in like producing, helping me produce the book. The ending of the book production process and Jasper leaving Facebook happened kind of at the same time. And I knew I wanted to work with him, and I had just kind of basically moved on from Darkroom in 2016. I actually took a contract with Lyft at the time, trying to just see if I'm still uh, capable of being employed, if I was employable. I also wanted to see if I can uh, survive on a design team, so that was a contract at Lyft on the design side. And I found out that, that I am still employable. I do not want to be a designer anymore, <laughs> and I got that one off uh, my shoulder. But I also knew I really wanted to work for myself, and Jasper at the time was... Um, You know, him and I were chatting like, hey, would you want to work with each other? We said yes. And He's like, dude, I still use Darkroom like all the time. You haven't done anything. You haven't fixed bugs. You haven't made an update in a year and a half. What's going on there? So we opened a book, so to speak, and we looked at our metrics and we looked at how the business was doing. And it was still making like some money, not nothing. And he was like, well, I like photos. You both like photography. Let's just like put in six months at a time investment and then just see what happens. And here we are seven years later. When a company is eight years old, nine years old now, it goes through phases. And I feel like we've gone through a few different phases. We're in a phase now. We were in a phase in the past. We're going to enter a different phase in the future. But one thing that's been consistent is just this mentality of where are we? Where are we trying to go? We'll keep working on this while we see there's things that are exciting for us to do. I'll skip ahead and then I'll help you direct me in the conversation where you want me to take it. And I'll give Jasper (laughs) the opportunity to to step in here. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, my first question is, and we kind of already
0: know a little bit of this, but I want to make sure that everyone else is aware. So obviously the designer-engineer combo is like the core of the package. But what did you actually start focusing on when you joined first, Jasper?
2: I had done a couple of design passes, so there were obviously some design things that I wanted to change. But actually, I think a lot of the work that I also did was go through support and get an understanding of what was going on for people and like work with Marsh to really figure out like what are the bugs that we need to fix. And then really looking at the books and the analytics and just figuring out like what's going on, what do we need to fix on the business side, on the conversion funnel, and like how do we increase our revenue to make it something where... Initially, Majd was making money and I wasn't. And that was okay because I had some money from my time at Facebook so that we could just like build up the, the business, make it sustainable for Majd first and then later me. And so, yeah, it was really just going kind of from scratch in a way, like from scratch in the sense of really building this relationship, building the process around, you know, what kind of product are we building and how should we build it? And then building a business around it simultaneously simultaneously minus, obviously, not yet having launched. We had launched, we had data, we had context, and it was really like trying to understand what do we have, how do we build it out.
1: The big thing when Jasper uh, started was we switched to a monthly uh, release cadence and every month we're like, okay, what are we focusing on here? What's the biggest bug people are hitting? What's the biggest metrics issue? Uh, what's, a, what's a monetization experiment we can run to try to figure out where people are dropping off? And that's where we played around a lot with our onboarding, with our upsells, with our pricing strategy, with all that stuff. That's what helped us double the revenue, which was starting from a very low number. So doubling was easy. So that, you know, every year we doubled in the first few years there in terms of our revenue, which quickly allowed us to hire another person, which helped us take on more ambitious projects and things like that. What
0: was the state of the product at the
1: time, just for everyone's context?
2: Oh, it was Darkroom, yeah, it was darkroom uh, room 2, right? Darkroom 2. Yeah, yeah it was so, Darkroom 2. Yeah.
1: So basically Darkroom was an app where when you open it, it was, I mean, I can describe the app because it was like four views at the time. So it was really easy easy to get through the whole thing. Uh, You just open it and it was an iPhone only app. You open it, you see your photo library, you tap on a photo, it zooms, it opens up, you can favorite it, you can delete it. There were the toolbar at the bottom and we had the ability to crop, rotate, straighten, presets, simple adjustments. And those were like really not great adjustments, but they were just kind of helped you kind of get close to where you wanted. Um, no raw support, no portrait photo support, no live photo support. All that stuff didn't exist. We allowed you to adjust curves and uh, selective color, apply frames and uh, history. And then that was no, it. Oh, so th- uh, yeah, the frames, but fr- there
2: were like frames. Were oh, an frames. Didn't, yeah, frames and were simple. Yeah. yeah. And
1: then you can just export the photo you're looking at. You could copy and paste and apply the same edits to a bunch of different photos and people really like that. But that was it. Like there's an enormous amount of stuff we have today that just didn't exist at the time. The biggest things that turned it from a sample app side project that was barely paying, wasn't even paying my salary, let alone Jaspers, into something that could sustain having somebody else come and join was the addition of raw editing, which wasn't possible. And we were the first major app to really support that. And then portrait editing, which when portrait photos became a thing, we allowed you to change the blur and edit the foreground and the background separately. Then we added an iPad app and there were very, very few, there still are very few like high-end photo editing apps on the iPad. And so those were the three milestones where Darkroom went from a small project to something much more serious.
0: Timing-wise, we're in 2015, 2016 now, my guess is. 16,
2: 17.
1: 8, yeah. yeah. Okay. 2016 was-, was just iPhone, yeah iPad came in 2018.
2: I just opened it just so we all have the context. Darkroom for iPad was December of 2018. So actually quite late. Darkroom 3 was 2017 and Darkroom 2 was 2015.
0: So we're basically in like this 2018 time horizon. Jasper, you've been there for a while now. The iPad app is out. Bring us back to that time because like my guess is like every time you do a thing, you start pointing at the next thing that's wrong and that then needs to resolution and, you know, is like the next big thing for you to focus on.
2: I think Darkroom for iPad was a revelation, not just for Majd and me, but also for our customers. Because funnily, Darkroom for iPad wasn't a different app. It was the same app, just redesigned and relayed out. Same functionality. It's just people's perspective of Darkroom shifted monumentally because it was a larger display. It felt more like a mature app, even though it was the same one, which was really interesting. Like people were kind of like, oh, hang on a second, this is a serious app. And we're like, well, it was all along, same stuff. Like we we didn't magically change that much. So that was actually really interesting and caused us also to think more about like the different audiences that you have on different platforms. It's still something we kind of, like, grapple is a heavy word, but, like, grapple is fair, I think. To describe, you know, we have different audiences on on different platforms. On iPhone, the majority of Darkroom customers are casual users. There are some professionals and more serious users. Um, But when you go to iPad and Mac specifically, you see a pretty significant shift in expectations. And so, whereas where we were in the iPhone landscape, it was much more up to us to sort of define... What do we build? What do we provide to people? People's expectations back then specifically weren't that high. We were pretty far ahead feature-wise. But as we moved to iPad and Mac, all of a sudden expectations of those platforms came in, seeping in. Especially when we did Mac eventually, we noticed a significant change in expectations. Because in all fairness, right... Mac photography editing apps are probably some of the oldest you know Photoshop was one of the first Uh, and and so you're battling 30 years of expectations of what an app should be able to do and uh, that was really interesting where it no longer was like this is what we want to build but like the voice of our customers became like very loud
1: yeah from the engineering perspective Before the iPad app, what people were asking us for were the ability to add a border around a photo so that when you post it to Instagram, you can post a non-square photo on Instagram when it forced you to be square. And like, that's a technically not very complicated product to build. Once we added the iPad and the Mac, you are like, well, I want like, high performance clarity that's as good as lightroom okay now i want highlight and shadow recovery on raw photos that are like 60 megapixels and i want to be able to zoom in and pan around okay but that's just it's a much like it's a different stratosphere of technical challenges and it's also a different uh, specialty and i think one thing that we kind of like have glossed over in one detail that's kind of been implied <laughs> is that for the first 3 years of darkroom it was just for the first year and a half of darkroom it was just me and then it was just me and Jasper and my my expertise technically is not in image processing like i come from a product world. I come from UI kit and like like halfway between design and engineering. I don't come from a math background where the technicalities of image processing come naturally to me and intuitively. And so a big part of what The history of Darkroom has been, and actually continues to be today, is fighting against that limitation of resources. You know, we only have the money that Darkroom makes because we're bootstrapped. We never took any external funding, and because I don't know how to build these things, I have to either take take things off the shelf, which is what we did for the initial version of Darkroom using an open-source image editing framework, and then building our own rendering system, which is what exists today took a year of work so that was most of 2019 once we built the ipad app and people started asking us for all these extra things that we couldn't do with our existing infrastructure we had to rebuild the infrastructure that new infrastructure that i built in 2019 lasted until now and now we're in the process of doing version 3 of our infrastructure because what people are asking us uh, to do now is like a step a couple of orders of magnitude more complicated than what we've been able to do and we've already maxed out the capabilities of our existing infrastructure and so it's this constant battle of like we need to grow the business by building new features on what we have but we also need to rebuild what we have so that it can support the next stage and there's kind of a lack of foresight that we could have because of the limited technical resources we had.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think an important thing to note there as well is that, as marsh said, right, um, I had never built a photo editing app. Uh, marsh had never built a photo editing app. So we didn't both have experience on the, the complex things you will bump into from an image processing perspective or from a resource management perspective. You know, the most complex processing thing I ever built as a product was Kaleidoscope. And it did some image processing, but it was nothing compared to what we were doing in Darkroom. And it was a Mac, which was like much less resource constrained. Darkroom on iPhone is a complicated, interesting combination when people are like, let me edit my awesome 100 megapixel Leica on my iPhone 6. And you're like, (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good idea, right? And so that's always been like an interesting struggle for us to figure out like, how do we make all of that work? How do we take the things that we know and play to our strengths? The infrastructure part has always been something where we, but like many others, didn't have the experience because there weren't that many apps. There aren't there many apps. Yes, there are a lot of image editors, but what Darkroom is doing and what Lightroom does and what some other apps are doing today is pretty unique in the sense that we kind of push what you should expect from a product. We pride ourselves in that product area, but that also causes us to to bump into really serious, difficult like infrastructural questions, which interestingly, not many, period, anybody in our t- industry have solved. And so what we're dealing with Darkroom is f- fairly unique in that sense.
0: So when... You look at the like balance between having to obviously do this like large scale image processing, and I've definitely been the person like giving a lot of feedback about my <laughs> you know, sixty megapixel photos and like why does my Michael. phone do it?
2: We didn't know.
0: <laughs> obviously, there there are features that you have thought of that you want to put out that hits the mobile user base the most. There are features that you're thinking of, and there's a lot of infrastructure that you're thinking of that hits all the user bases, but. You know touches more on the like larger screen audience how do you think about portfolio managing like those things at, at, in in one go
1: well, what do you mean by portfolio management specifically like
0: like how much percent do you actually focus on phone features how much percent like how, how do you split up the time of all of these tensions that pull you in all
1: directions the way we think about it is a lot of the features that the phone first user base wants are, less technically challenging than the one that the big screen photographers want. And so we try to think of them in parallel. And so we try to figure out, like, what can we build that, for example, like preset discovery and preset sharing is something that we think that will appeal much more to the mobile phone customer base. And so that's something that we can do in parallel with some of the infrastructure stuff that we're doing to support 100 megapixel photos at 120 frames per second on the latest MacBooks. And so we try to parallelize that wherever we can. Where we run into issues are things that have dependencies between the two. There's a lot of stuff that we want to build that's for our mobile uh, user base, but that's dependent on the infrastructure that we're building Mm -hmm. for the bigger screens. And so we talk to our customers a lot, whether it's on social media or in support or one-on-one, and we have a pretty clear sense of what people want from Darkroom. So that's not a secret to us. The question is, which is the one that people are asking for the most, and which is the one that we can do with the resources that we have available, both technically and financially?
2: I think it's less a question of large company thinking where it's a question of what are the things that we could build and let's just stack rank them and let's build those. For us, the resource allocation and constraint on resources, it's not just people, but it's also like engineering complexity, have a big impact on how we order and sequence what we actually develop. And so if you'd ask us like, what do you want to build, Majd and Jasper? We can yap at you for the next six hours and it'll sound amazing. Uh, but that's not the question, um, right? It's not about what we want to build. It's also not entirely about what our customers want, but it's also, it, it's the intersection of what we can actually realistically achieve given the, the 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 constraints that we have.
1: There's usually like the most important thing people want. The thing that we know if we build it will increase our revenue f- like 30, 40, 50%. But that thing when we want to build it has this long list of dependencies before and what we try to do is not spend a year and a half not launching things because we're waiting for that dependency to be done before starting working on this big thing that we want to do. And these numbers are just kind of arbitrary. Like, don't put that number, a year and a half in your head, but like just arbitrarily long time. We try to see how we can break up this like dependency in a way that can deliver value in the meantime. So there's like, for, like as, as an example, people want to do edit syncing. Edit syncing thinking it's going to take a long time for us to get done because we need to rebuild how our persistence layer works. I'm not going to bore you with technical details, but there's an infrastructure project involved there. And so how can we take this long infrastructure project that's going to enable the thing people really want and then release things in between in the meantime as they become enabled. And so sometimes people see us releasing something was like, why are you working on this when I want this other thing? I'm just like, well, we're working towards there, but like You know, it's a a march, and we're trying to just keep the release train going because we we know that once we stop releasing and just go off into a hole for a year, every number and every kind of all the relevances that we've built and um, the brand associations that we will start to kind of like weaken. And so we have to balance uh, frequency of release with this like, resource constraint with what people want. And we try to not go too long without releasing anything. And we try to always have what we're working on built towards the big thing. And so if we find ourselves spending a lot of time working on something that's not going to lead to something big, then we really have to question if it's worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. Earlier in in the episode, you mentioned that you know, Darkroom came along in the world where Lightroom Mobile didn't exist yet. Adobe and as a whole has gone this whole SaaS route there is there are a lot more products across a lot more platforms. How do you find yourself in this marketplace now where obviously they're Goliath? You know, you're one of the Davids. I don't know, actually, I'm I used to be very familiar with the landscape of all of the apps that you use for photography, but I really like using Darkroom and Lightroom at the same time. I basically just use those two and don't look at the rest anymore. (laughs) How do you perceive yourself currently in the landscape of competitors of various different sizes? What sets you apart? How do you prioritize? Jasper, do you want to go
1: for this one or do you want me to answer this one?
2: You go first. Then I'll try and repair whatever you
1: said. Jasper hinted at this briefly earlier talking about the difference between an image editor and a photo editing app. The way we see that distinction is one is designed for getting you into a photo so that you can manipulate the colors or potentially composite things on top of it and then kind of go out of that, commit your changes, export them or discard them and go to the next photo. And different apps make that easier and harder to navigate. But fundamentally, as long as I can't just fly and zoom through my photo library at will without making committing changes, you're an image editor. You're not a photo editing app. And there's the, kind of what differentiates the Lightroom from Photoshop is the asset management. And I think that's critical. So I think the there's a ton. There's literally tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of photo editing apps on the App Store. The vast majority are focused on a single photo at a time. Of the apps that allow you to navigate your library, there's really only three. Well, there's three major ones. There's a few smaller players. Darkroom, Lightroom, and uh, Photomator. Photomator on the Mac, just one Mac app of the year. It's a great app. But those are the three apps on the different platforms that hit the library management plus photo editing so you're limiting the scope of complexity that you can do in photo editing compared to something like photoshop that's more general purpose for a single photo but you're gaining efficiency and flow and workflow so that's how we differentiate these two three apps from everything else now within those apps the difference between lightroom and darkroom is that lightroom wants you to use creative cloud um, ultimately, Lightroom is an app to get you to subscribe to Creative Cloud so that you can um, be locked into the Creative Cloud world, which I'm a part of as well. You know, I use Lightroom and Darkroom for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And if you have your photos in Creative Cloud, then paying for Darkroom when your photos are on Creative Cloud doesn't make sense because you'd have to export them from Creative Cloud, edit them in Darkroom, and then export them back, which, which really is just an unnatural workflow that and you're paying twice for storage, which doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And the vice versa is true. When you're using darkroom, you're editing your iCloud photo library. You're not editing your Creative Cloud photos. And so to, to me, the way I kind of describe it is darkroom is essentially Lightroom, but for iCloud photo library.
0: hmm
2: I think that the, what I would add to what Marge said is that, especially when we began with Darkroom, and I still think that's like in the roots of who we are as a product and as a company, it's a very much a mobile, like efficiency first approach that we take to what we're trying to achieve with Darkroom. That goes as far as counting the taps that Marge said before, doing something in Visco or Snapseed, taking 16 taps and driving him nuts is something that's still there today. But it's not just about the editing, right? It's about the workflow. Like, people are trying to not just tell a story with one photo, although many of us do, but we're trying to manage, like, a story. We have an album that we want to go through. We have a vacation. We have a weekend of stuff we want to go through. And, like, the workflow efficiency is about the telling the story. And that's really what we're trying to approach here. Is And, and the mobile part is really important, because people hold their phones with one hand, with a thumb. Maybe they have two hands. They're not sitting behind a desktop per definition with a mouse and a keyboard and do stuff with keyboard shortcuts. And so like these platforms take a very different approach to its efficiency. And so like the mobile efficiency part is something we take a lot of pride in. Our background in product is something where we think... We put a lot of effort in and where we believe that we're providing a significant difference co- as compared to not just Lightroom, but like honestly, everybody else. Because trying to compete with Lightroom on the quality of the processed image is like definitely the epitome of David versus Goliath. Like they have 75 PhDs working there that know like a 50,000 times more. Yeah. Like that, we can't compete with that or we try but it's difficult and we definitely lean on their learnings and them contributing to the open source community and sharing their papers for us to understand, so, oh yeah, we agree. That's awesome. Like, how do we do that? But interestingly, like we see them do the same thing when it comes to the mobile efficiency part, not just them, but other companies as well. It's like we see some of the patterns that we've developed appear in other products. And, you know, that I think that's a definitely like a very unique part to what we're providing with Darkroom. I think
1: the one way to kind of take this a little bit more philosophical, is a lot of these products reflect the people behind them, especially the ones who started them, and their core strengths. And so you can take a look at all these different apps and say, what's at the core of it? So some apps have an AI algorithm at the core of them. So like this one, like PhotoRoom, for example, it's like an amazing app, massive success. Their the core of their app is the ability to remove backgrounds. and so the rest of the thing kind of grows around that. Something like uh, Photoshop, the core of it is a rendering uh, engine. so the the rest of the whole product grows out of that. And for us, the core is the workflow, and everything that we do kind of grows out of that. And everything we want to do prioritize, think about is around helping you manage your photo library. Nice. And I think that's I think that's unique within like mobile photo editing apps. Yeah, it's
0: really funny because I'm literally browsing to like another app that I haven't heard of and it's like good to kind of hear (laughs) that you're like how you're sitting in this landscape. So there's this like mobile first like thinking of uh, the taps and like the thumb and stuff like that. How does that actually translate to the iPad and like the Mac, you know, layout changes and kind of how you think about, I mean, maybe set in a more like esoteric designery way. What's the thumb (laughs) of the desktop? Do you think about people that use like, their iPad with their hands, and then also like they put it on a magic keyboard. Like, how do you kind of conceptually go through that?
2: Yes, we try and recontextualize. I think like the important thing that we did with Darkroom for iPad is definitely completely reconsider the UI. So the Darkroom UI on iPad is not a scaled up version of the iPhone one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Darkroom experience on iPad is also a landscape first, not a portrait first. That's a big assumption we made. And also felt like the right one. The portrait layout is definitely a up version of the darkroom for iPhone, because like that made sense. But the, the landscape layout is wildly different. It borrows patterns, but it's like a, a complete reimagination of what we could do there.
1: The design for the iPads definitely started with us visualizing people holding the f- device with one hand on either side. And we wanted yep. to make sure that the critical interactions were reachable within the thumb. That's why we center things like the central toolbar, for example, is there to be tappable. But I think, the, it, to be honest, it's a thing we're learning. Like I think sometimes we assume that because the responsive web has had a longer history of making responsive design, that like the same thing applies to a tool like Lightroom or Darkroom or Photoshop or something like that, but it really doesn't. Like It's the information density, the tools, what you can show and what you can hide is very different. Um, and it's something that we're learning, is something that we're um, uh, experimenting with. So for example, most recently, we redesigned the album sidebar so to support a, lo- a much higher level of complexity for album browsing and folders and nesting and expansion and collapse and searching, sorting, all that stuff, right? And so what we're doing is we're slowly trying to make things more dense because we took our iPhone mentality and projected it like not the design but the mentality and projected it on the Mac and iPad which is simplify reduce eliminate and and I, and I think what where the industry has been going recently is to kind of increase information density, makes things more like optimized for efficiency alongside optimizing for ease of use. And that's something that's actually coming into the iPhone as well for us. And so what we're starting to say is like the same insight we had in 2014 that people are starting to take mobile photography more seriously. The same thing is happening for the iPhone itself where, okay, now this is an iPhone 15 Pro Max, which is... Literally the same thing as my MacBook, just with a slightly smaller screen and then 15 Pro Max is much bigger. So now people want to do much more powerful stuff on their phone, and they don't want to feel limited. And so what we're trying to do now, and you see this with the masks tool, for instance, um, the selective adjustment tool in darkroom is like, how do we give you access to all this stuff and make it super powerful? and make it super deep as a tool without making it super overwhelming and and I think this might be a good comparison point uh, to to Lightroom which is coming up which if you compare the selective adjustment tool and Dark room and Lightroom, they're order of magnitude at the same level of complexity, but you've got like three floating panels that you have to like open and close and they overlap. And what we spent a ton of time doing, Jesper spent a good six months iterating on, is a different way of structuring and modeling the interactions around masking with their depth so that they don't overwhelm you. So that it's yeah. clear what you can do, where you go to do it.
2: I think there there's two interesting things to touch on here. One is that I definitely feel... Or like I know for a fact that like our iPad app was more designed for you know the smaller, more mobile iPads, and less so for the large green iPads. And I think when you look at Darkroom for Mac, you can see those same patterns reappear there. One of the things I really want to do in the like the year ahead is. Reimagine what Darkroom for the large screen, like the really large screen, looks like. Right? I think like right now you can say Darkroom works well on a small iPad and works on a MacBook Air. That's where it actually feels really good, much closer to the like mobile-first approach. But like on the very large screen, on a twenty-seven-inch monitor or on a large iPad, like some of the patterns that we're using don't fully m- make sense. And that makes sense given our history. That's definitely an area where I've been learning, and I, f- I feel like we have to reapproach certain things. But it adds quite a little, quite a bit of co- complexity, right? Yes, responsiveness, but it's not just responsiveness in making some things better, but actually restructuring it to what Mars said. I think it's another part of what I'm pretty proud. Of. What we're trying to achieve with Darkroom is like, yeah, not shying away from complicated features. Like when we say efficiency in workflow and ease and counting tabs, we're not saying like, saying make things dumb and like just add a magic button and shit just happens magically. That's not the point here. It's actually like to go through the effort of taking a very complicated thing and like figuring out how do we make this easier for people to understand, not dumber. How do we make it easier? Not less complicated, but like, Mm -hmm. how do we make it clearer so that like the complexity and the flexibility is still there, but it's like much more evident on how to deploy it and use it and not get confused or get lost within a structure of 17 panels that are nested and you don't know how to exit or continue.
1: And and no modes, Jasper, like, reaches out across Zoom and (laughs) smacks me on the stick every time I want to add a mode.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, modalities are fine, but, like, a modality definitely will make something feel slower. And so it's not that, like modes are a bad thing darkroom is filled with modes it's just that the user shouldn't see or feel them now that's where like darkroom is pretty magical because like you can swipe between photos you can edit and you don't feel like you're ever saving anything it just feels very organic and like you feel this most in
1: darkroom with the library versus develop tabs and how different everything behaves depending on which tab you are but you don't see really which tab you're in. You just hit a button and nothing happens, and then you realize, oh, I need to hit D first, and then I need to hit the G, and then stuff yep. like that, um, stuff that we like abstract away. And then on the engineering side to, of what Jasper talked about is now I have like, three UIs to build, and now we're adding like different optimizations for different ones, and so we say we want to do this. It's so, all oh, right, yeah, but like the UI layer doesn't support that, so now we have to refactor new <laughs> yeah. Stuff, yeah.
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We've talked a little
0: bit about. Like, product actually we've talked a lot about the product and like the engineering and the creation and you know clearly no modes maybe that becomes the title you know <laughs> 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 sl- slaps me across the like ten thousand kilometers go for it a stick yeah <laughs> large stick is jasper um one of the things that you mentioned very early on mesh which is like the core of the reason why you wanted to start this was you wanted to have that connection with you know the person that pays you the money which you know if we use like a nicer word for that is like you want a connection with like your community right like people say audience, some people say community. I'm fairly sure that the way you have started this interactively, obviously myself, Jasper, Matt Brown, Ryan, like a bunch of Instagram folks like being included early kind of as like sounding boards and stuff. Like there, there is, you care a lot about like the voice coming in right now. You care a lot about the voice coming in through the customer support channels and like in, in a way that you have to like also say no to them sometimes because you're pre- reprioritizing other things and you're trying to explain things. When you think about how much value you get out of the community, obviously I can understand how it is when you have a couple of friends that you trust and you can spitball with. Like, how do you actually approach the community management aspect of Darkroom?
1: Oof. Yeah, that's a it's a little bit of a tough question to answer because I think that's one of the things that we haven't historically done like an excellent job of. It's also one of the things I've known I haven't done a good job of. And so I think it's something that I have a lot of ideas of what I want to do. but frankly a lot of those ideas have been deprioritized behind the day-to-day effort. The community does exist and does support us and is actually a critical component of what we do. And so especially when you're th- right now f- five people working, on the app. Like it's a small team and we're the ones doing all the work on the engineering and the development. So it's really easy to kind of get lost in the weeds and lose track of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think the feedback we get from the community just keeps us grounded. What we've been doing to try to get the community more engaged is to try to give them more ownership over the darkroom narrative. And so like research sharing, I think is a really big component of that where, I mean, you're kind of a shining star of that, right? Michael, you made that website to showcase presets. Bezad, for example, a friend of ours, puts up like blog post of summarizing his presets that he's made. Other people like to do drops of their presets. and so that that is in its nascency today, and that's one of our big areas of growth.
2: i th- I think like darkroom is at the core is a utility and a tool. That's how we built it. It's not a it's not a social network. I think that the exception since the last twelve months. Uh, of release of preset sharing is is preset sharing it's the first time we're doing uh, like a community social part in darkroom but we're pretty close to how Apple builds its product. Like Apple is not a social, like community driven product category. They've tried and they've been interesting and fascinating and humorous to observe from the outside, but not particularly successful. But that ecosystem is also like very privacy security driven. And like we we like photos are some of the like most delicate objects that people have on their phones and so we've been trying to also be delicate about it in that sense and so if you take that plus being a utility you know even preset sharing doesn't have built-in attribution for lots of different reasons. Community is not like has not been like a, a central piece to what darkroom is and how we've built it. Preset sharing definitely is like showing ways in which we can and in which we should and in which we want to grow that out. But Yeah, it's not like, it's never been like a major ambition for us to be just like Glass or Instagram be like a major community around photography. That's not to say that we don't think there is value there. It's just like the question of like, how do you build that into a product that is by definition a utility? Some of the stuff we've talked about like early on and have talked about off on and off is more collaborative tools, review tools. Those could be interesting, but they're less about community and they're much more about collaboration, maybe. I think if you look at preset sharing, that's also less about community, a little bit more about collaboration. They are for community, for the creators, for the photographers that create peer sits. They help them create a community for them, but it's not so much like a darkroom community, I think. Couldn't have said it better myself. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh- how about like,
0: super fans? We um, have those. Yeah. How do you like, <laughs> think, like? do you communicate with them often? Like, how do you like kind of handle that? Yeah,
1: There's there, there are a few, yourself included. And what we do is we try to kind of share work in progress with them. And their feedback on that informs our communication. So for example, like when we have a big feature like masking coming out, and we do a public beta, which is one of the big ways that we communicate with some of our super fans is through our beta channel, is their feedback and what they tell us informs very much of like how we describe the feature, how we talk about it and there's been some gaps in the past you know there's this thing that we was we thought was a small component of what we're doing turns out to be a big thing and something we thought was a big thing turned out to not be a big thing that's how we communicate with them where i want us to mo- get into in the future is kind of fostering that relationship and growing that relationship with people and uh, and i think as some of the technical infrastructure that we're investments we're doing right now as those start to bear fruit the focus will shift towards that right now our focus is in house internal trying to um, Act out on our roadmap. But I think there's going to come a time where superfans, community, brand ambassadors, meetups, events, promotions, contests, all that stuff becomes much more of an area of investment. And right now, we just don't really have the resources to pursue that properly.
2: Mm-hmm. I think one one thing that's important to note there as well is that engaging with uh, superfans, the 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 community at large that is following the development of Darkroom, that has an opinion about what we should be doing, what we should focus on, the order in which we should do that, uh, right now is also constrained by, like we've said it multiple times now, you know, some of the resource constraints and like the big infrastructure investments that we're currently doing, and so. We do engage with those conversations, specifically around masks. We made sure to invest quite a lot. Right now, like engaging with that community would be somewhat frustrating on either side because the asks, we know what the asks are because they haven't changed. It's just that we can't right now fulfill them on the short term. And so, they think those kinds of conversations are very fruitful when you have a platform, which we're like investing in heavily, have invested in heavily, when you can actually like convert on that that conversation and on that promise within a reasonable time frame, in which like people will actually feel like satisfied.
1: I think this kind of talks to also a, a set of trade off that we always have to make given our limited resources, and that's kind of a recurring pattern both in this conversation and in the past nine years of running Darkroom, which is. We're profitable but we're not like rolling in gold and sitting on it and not using it to invest in the growth of darkroom like everything we make goes into growing darkroom mainly because we believe in the future trajectory of darkroom that's kind of defined my experience um, i think jasper as well like running darkroom for the past nine years is the gap between what we want to do and what we can do and what we should do and we know we have to do um it comes down to how much the scarcity resources, both in terms of time and in revenue that we invest in building this behemoth of a product?
2: Listen, like if we'd known all the things we know today, we wouldn't be where we are today. And we would have built all of this from the start perfectly. And, you know, that's where capital and a lot of money, like sometimes makes it seem as if everybody knew exactly what they were doing. And it's just like, sometimes on a faster timescale, sometimes on a slower, or they just went off on a tangent for two years. But like at the end, everybody was like, oh, that looked like a straight line. It's like, there is no straight line. And so, yeah, like Darkroom's render engine is one of those things where like every two years or every three years, we learn a bunch of stuff and we're like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess this is something we now need to do and, and then we have to do it. Adobe probably went through twenty-five iterations that we don't know of, and they never talked about. I'm pretty sure they did because look at what they have,
0: right? So actually, this is—it's uh, really funny that you guys opened this door already because this is something I'm really interested in hearing more about. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the real stuff for a second. You know, like the render engine, <laughs> go for it's, it. It's had to be redone for a couple times. I'm fairly sure that when you were starting Darkroom, that like there were there was money being thrown at you, and you had the possibility to you know, take VC money go that direction. I think that you guys stand out as, you know, one of the few companies that have decided to stay bootstrapped and that incentivizes you to do like wholly different things and focus on, on, on different things. Can you talk me a little bit through like your thinking on the bootstrapping? Because I think that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people think, well, it's easy to start a thing. Because you asked chat GPT now and (laughs) it'll program it but then a lot of people also like they see that straight line that you mentioned jasper and it's overnight success nine years in the making in the case of both of you all you were already like successful in your career you could have jumped from you know spot the spot go do a new thing build upon the past etc and you are both deciding to prioritize a significant amount of your time and your career to focus on something like this maybe first a question Let's talk about the you know VC money versus like and the raising question versus the bootstrapping question, and then I would love to hear kind of both of your thoughts on like how you personally perceive spending time on Darkroom versus you know the opportunity cost against other things.
1: Uh, I mean, I guess I can start with the early part before Jasper joined, which was like I said, Darkroom started as a side project. It didn't start out as um, a big company, and. I had gone to Facebook where we met through an acquisition from a venture-backed company. So I've seen the end-to-end flow that that goes through. I also knew enough VCs just like socially living in San Francisco through my career to know what they want and what their business model is. And when I was starting Darkroom in 2014, there was no version of what I was working on that I could earnestly believe was VC scale nothing I was doing was going to be at VC scale. And to be honest, I wasn't particularly chasing VC scale. Had I come across an opportunity I believed in that was VC scale, I would have gone for it. I'm not like philosophically anti-venture capital, but I fell on something I wanted to do and I believed in that I thought could be a multi-million dollar a year business, and, but that was not VC scale. And I know a bunch of people will tell you, don't worry about VC scale, go raise, and then you'll figure it out later. But that just was not Something I felt like I could do as a, on a personality level and also on a career level. Like I've seen where those narratives end, and they typically end in an aqua hire, and you're back in the place I was before I quit. And I really did not want to end up where I was, and so that's why we didn't pursue venture capital in the beginning. That continued to be the case until around 2020, 2021, when we made the switch. 2020, when we made the switch to subscriptions. And then at the time, we started seeing, oh, there actually could be VC scale opportunities in mobile apps, especially now with the growth of Instagram ads plat- as a platform, the growth of people's willingness to spend money. Because remember, 2014, it was just like $5 was an expensive app. We were a premium app eventually at 2017 at $10. And people really struggled with that. And so you really can't build a VC, long-term sustainable business model uh, off of that. But now you can. Now you have Duolingo. You've you've got like all these massive, like Headspace, Calm, all these companies making billions of dollars off of it. And so it is VC scale. And it was probably a moment in time where that, Transitioned from a market dynamics perspective, and we were we probably didn't see that switch happen in real time. But then there's the question of what do we want, which is where I think Jasper comes in, and I'll, I'll have him hand off from that point from 2020.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, f- for me, after having worked at, at Facebook, I just really like enjoyed working with Marge had financial independence. And so for me, it's always been sort of a ride of we can go anywhere we want, but let's optimize towards what we want, what works for us, what do we want to do. And I'm not anti-VC, Majd is not anti-VC, but it does come with certain expectations and things that you have to do and you go through. And our guilty pleasure for sure is just building an awesome beautiful product, and like, VC doesn't particularly want to hear that. They also want to hear like, how are you going to make that like hundred X on my investment and like, that's never been where we've had a strong answer. That's never been where like our major ambitions have been like, of course we want like an awesome, healthy company, but we want that to be the result of having a, an awesome company to work for our company and build a beautiful, gorgeous product. And that's where it starts. And we also kind of, I think, like, we, we both maybe don't say it out loud, but we kind of like the struggle. It's, like, terrible well, at times. Pesachistic a little bit. Yeah. It's like, it is, for me, it's also, like, fun and interesting to figure this shit out at the time scale that we're working on because we have the time to figure it out. Yes, we're not making tens of millions, but, you know, we're still a profitable company. We still make enough money. And it's, I think, like, for me... You know, as long that stays true and as long there's not a fundamental blocker in our way that is unsolvable unless you have heaps of money. The question I always ask is, is What we, like? would we do anything fundamentally different? Does hiring 200 people change fundamentally in what order we have to do stuff? Will it actually speed it up? And we all know that more people doesn't necessarily mean faster. More people doesn't mean necessarily that you can do things in parallel. We always think we can, but it's actually surprisingly difficult to pull that off.
1: And one thing one thing that to like kind of address which is the fact that this wouldn't happen. We wouldn't have made these decisions if Jasper and I didn't work at Facebook pre-IPO and we had a bunch of money to lean For on sure. to draw from. Like, that's just kind of the reality of it. So if, if you didn't have that experience...
2: If we say bootstrapped, we're self-funded. Self-be-real. Self self-funded,
1: yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's like... Um, so that, that's kind of... Yeah, yeah, let's make the implicit explicit here, which is we're using that privilege to enable this narrative, right? Not everyone can do that. And... The other part of it, which I think Jasper is kind of mentioning, which talked to your second part of your question, Michael, which is how we think about the trade-off. There's two parts to that for me. And I think what Jasper said is really true, which is I'm running a company right now which is four or five people. We're dealing with product uh, challenges. We're dealing with resource allocation challenges. We're dealing with marketing challenges. We're dealing with all these challenges in a very raw way, in a very direct way, where... You know, I'm facing this challenge and I have the resources to resolve this challenge. If I quit darkroom and go work in a bigger company or if I start a VC-backed company or something like that, the fundamental challenges I'm dealing with are still going to remain like business challenges for business leaders to figure out how to resolve. If I can't figure it out in a much more direct and raw way, Adding layers of complexity and indirectness between me and the customer is not going to make it easier for me to figure out how to resolve it. And so for me, it's, oh, you know, we need to invest more in community, for example. All right, like, how are you going to do that? What works? What doesn't? I can figure that out now and I can come out the better for it. And that's one of the ways that I, like what Jasper mentioned as masochism, we like the challenge. I think that's the, like the less jokey version of it is that there's an opportunity to learn in a very real, raw way, in a very direct way that I think is invaluable. I think the second part of that is... I've been working on Room since June of 2014. So I'm coming up on almost a decade of working on it every single day. And I have not worked on anything else other than that one year gap where I just didn't work on it. So so seven, eight years now, eight years of working on Darkroom nonstop. And come Saturday night, come Sunday night, I'm still like jazzed about Monday coming so that I can go work to work. And I think to me, that's kind of just a fundamental thing about our, our presence in life <laughs> and like the purpose of life is to just be jazzed about Monday coming after taking a break from work because that's the surest sign that I'm not burnt out is the surest sign that I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm doing the right thing could I make uh heaps more money honestly there's probably I, I could have just stayed at Facebook for an extra two years and like no amount of money <laughs> success since then Well, <laughs> but like What's the value of that compared to saying, hey, I spent my 20s and my 30s working for myself, wanting for nothing and having everything I want, working with people I enjoy, having customers who I can call my friends who sometimes I, sometimes there's that, you know, some, am I retired? What's the difference between what my life today and retirement? I think I'm too masochistic, as Jasper said, to just go sit on a beach in Tahiti. I think I'll be basically doing the same thing no matter what. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't hate this. (laughs) I quite enjoy it, actually, is why I keep doing it. And it gives me a lot of freedom to spend time with my family, you know, to travel, to take vacations, to have work-life balance, to have time for my hobbies, while also working a ton and having an impact on, you know, I would, this might be egotistical and self-centered to say, but I'd venture to say that mobile photo editing tools have been influenced in general by what we've done at Darkroom. And that's impact, you know, like the people like you who have been using Darkroom for nine years, like that's impact. We're all, you know, we can afford to pay ourselves and maintain our lifestyles. And so trying to think of opportunity costs to kind of maximize that to a global maximum just starts to feel like greed to me. That. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> I think that's a take
1: that we don't hear a lot, you know, We're like there,
0: there is maybe, and this is probably also my personal perspective on this. There is like a certain vibe to indie software companies that I believe you guys don't really subscribe to. There's a like very big anti big company like indie yeah, like section. But I think that what I'm hearing here is a very balanced reasoning as to like, well, I could do this, but well, this th- other side brings me much more personal joy on a daily basis. I would use terms like self-actualization or whatever the hell, like everyone's already like running up the mountain trying to do the the bigger thing, but, what I'm hearing is like th- that you kind of realize, hey, this is something that I want to work on. This is something that I want to invest in. This is an investment that I want to make for a very long time. You know, as long as I'm happy on Sunday evening that I get to invest more in this, like that's why I'll we'll, I'll, stick, I'll keep on doing this, basically.
2: A big thing that plays into our perspective, I see some parallels there in the experiences that Majd and I have both had prior to working on Darkroom is, you know, at Sofa, we prided ourselves in just making awesome products business wise we weren't the smartest. At Facebook, I learned a lot on a gazillion different axes regarding like anything from product to design to business. I think like for Majd, it's been the same, like his internship at Apple and working at Apple, like working at a startup, working at Facebook, working at Instagram, like we've experienced quite a spectrum of scale, of different phases, of different team sizes, different personalities, and perhaps like somewhat compressed. But I think like our nuance, or at least our perspective, I think our perspective is fairly nuanced, comes from like having been exposed to a lot of different ways to run businesses. The way we run Darkroom is a perspective. It's our perspective. I don't think it's the perspective. Um, I think it's the one that fits us. That doesn't mean what we do today, how we operate today is going to be what it looks like in five years. We're not saying we'll never do VC, like, that like, we've never said that. It's actually like a conversation we probably have every year. Is this it? Should we do it now? Does it make a difference? What do we tell them? What the, would they ask of us? It's actually a healthy conversation to have because it also like triggers that question of like how do we grow bigger? Because honestly, that's the underlying question there. Like it, It's not about like, let's get money for money's sake because the VC will ask what are you going to do with it? And so you, if you don't have a solid answer to what are you going to do with it externally, well then like... Uh, how you, you don't have it internally either, right? So it is a conversation we have. It's a thought exercise we go through. I think it's a very healthy one for, honestly, any independent company. Unless, obviously, if growing and scale is not your ambition, which is absolutely fine. There is no issue. If your product and your company supports your lifestyle and you're fully happy with it, then don't ask that question. Totally fine. I don't have an issue with that.
1: And I think one last thing uh, to go back to privilege, right? Like we're, Jasper and I are lucky to have had a career that exposed us to really smart people who are all really ambitious, who have reached high levels of seniority in really big and impressive companies. We can see the grass on the other side and you know, like we know what's on the other side and when we talk to, these are our friends, you know, and I talk to them and I know what their experience is like. And the ones who are happy, I'm just like, well, I just, I wouldn't be happy with what makes you happy. And the ones who are not happy, well, I'm like, I don't want to do it because like, you're validating the fact that it wouldn't make me happy. And so I've tried it, you know, so it's, it's, I don't have the constant nag thread in my, in the back of my mind saying, oh, I wonder if it would be better if I did that. And I think that helps eliminate some buzz.
2: Mm -hmm. That said, I do think there's, like, I felt it back in the sofa days, and I think it's also true for the timing of what we did with Darkroom. Like, Darkroom's timing was magical in a way when it comes to, like, what the state of the iPhone was, what tools were available, what the competitive landscape looked like. When Darkroom got started, like, there wasn't a lot. And so finding a spot and building as the other tools and apps were maturing was like good timing with sofa we were one of the first to build like quality mac apps and build an indie business around that but there weren't that many like really there weren't that many i think both companies had a good sense of timing not like not one that was like planned but that was to just happened i think like there are definitely categories of products today that if you would build them today, like there is no other way to achieve it other than being venture-backed. Like building Darkroom today is not a good idea. Somebody should try and do it. Somebody should show us the way in like how we are clearly not doing it right. I love it when people like build stuff that is better than ours because like we can learn from it. I think it's good for creative people in general like that happens. It's the reason why we built Darkroom because like we felt there was a better way or a different way to do it. But man, do you need to build a lot mm. to be able to compete with us or Photomator or uh, Lightroom or anybody in the image like processing space because the expectations are ginormous.
0: I think there's a lot of nice reality check vibe in this conversation, which I'm, I'm <laughs> going to be
2: super excited to edit it and then share it with the
0: world. Kind of like going on the flip side of that, you know, looking ahead. What are some things that you all are excited about that you're also, by the way, comfortable talking about? And I don't want to like out your any futures or whatever. What's 2024 is, is around the corner. What do you look at as some great
1: stuff that you are excited about? I think for me, there's two components to that. Both are kind of enabled by external technological sh- shifts. One is like AI, which we do a bit of with person segmentation with depth estimation for for masking. That's one of the big reasons why we're investing so much in infrastructure over the past year is to enable us to really take advantage of the new chips and the new iPhones and neural engine and stuff like that to really build beautiful, fast, high-quality ML-driven features in darkroom that kind of take some of the repetitive actions that you do all the time. Some of the things that you don't do because they're too much work and just making those invisible or automatic and then sprinkle the Jasper Darkroom magic on top of that to make it be like, oh, this is like a much simpler way of doing what you could do before. Awesome. This is what Darkroom's about. The second thing for me is some of the API changes on iOS in the past couple of years have enabled us to build. Uh, digital asset management on top of iCloud photo library in a much much deeper way than we could in the past and so without boring you with technical uh, minutiae the ability to kind of fly through your library group it organize it jump around was kind of across devices was enabled very recently with some new api that i think when we talk about workflow being the core of what we do that's where we can really dig deep and kind of build like really magical experiences for people, especially those who, you know, might be traveling with their iPhone or an external camera on a trip and then going back on their computer and editing on the Mac and kind of bridging the divide be- across the devices. I think that's going to be really magical.
2: Yeah, I think like building on on what Marge said, all the things I'm really excited about are things that we've talked about at length internally and are things we've been working on for a year plus and, and, and will be coming out in, in the coming years. Are all the extension of this like workflow efficiency automation part? I think right now we're just making sure that the foundation is ready for that. Just to be very clear, because Darkroom as it exists today in the App Store just isn't going to be able to pull that off, and that's why we're we're making those investments. And like the exciting stuff for for me there are like definitely what Mars said. It's like I, I think there is so much to win in like asset management, library management. It's so incredibly manual. It's something that has blown my mind, especially for the past year as we've talked internally and I've designed quite a bit around it. It seems that there, especially with machine learning, there there is an incredible amount of fun stuff that we can pull off there, whether it's like saving people gigabytes of storage or, uh, you know, going through old memories, like much more efficient to like grouping in smarter and and, in different ways, helping you pick photos, like, like, Um, get rid of near duplicate photos. There is a lot to achieve there that nobody's doing. And we're really excited to to be able to spend some time on. And similarly, it's on the photo editing side as well. Let's not forget that like editing photos today is like still a very manual process. I'm not saying there should be a magic button, but it should be closer to something like that. You know, that's why presets exist. There, there are things there that we could do faster. What I would say, what I would describe,
1: Jess, what you're saying is photo editing today remains very imperative, and we want to make it more declarative. Like yeah. we, You still have to know how to use the tools to achieve an effect, and we want to make it easier to, to just describe what you want and get it. And don't worry, it's not going to be a chat GBT text input button.
2: <laughs> exactly. No, but it's even small stuff like if I edit this photo of a weekend then it's probably pretty likely that I want the other ones from the weekend that look pretty good to look similar. And it's like, why don't we have that yet? Because it's hard, but it's the level of stuff we want to pull off. And like, obviously there are uh, big features that people have been asking for a while are mask segmentation, brushing. Like there's a lot more stuff that we can do there using AI and ML, similarly with retouching. But the, the, the real question there has been like again how do you make that fast how do you make that mobile how do you not not have that have to route through a server and how do you make that like work on high resolution and so those are things where we've see, been seeing a lot of developments that are awesome in especially in the last 2 3 years they're not yet at the level where like they they can be fully used by serious photographers on the edge cases where we deal with where we do want to deliver like darkroom is not a toy like we're not just like a fun little app you buy on the weekend and then throw away it's like we're trying to build something where we have professional photographers use it and so like we do want to make sure that the things that we build you know can be taken seriously can be compared to serious competitors and yes, that are also like usable by everybody else. But it all goes back to building exciting stuff that like will help you like make your workflow more efficient, no matter what it is.
0: Thank you so much for sharing so many different angles to like the darkroom story. I'm fairly sure so much of it will be new for people that are aware of you that may be are not aware of you, and this is like their first introduction to darkroom. I think it's great to just hear both like your passion for you know, creating something, having the real focus and, and, and kind of that identification of what the darkroom magic is, but then also, you know, knowing how to talk about the business behind it and, you know, the trade-off between like funding and bootstrapping and how you deal with like limited resources, et cetera. So I just want to say, yeah, a massive thank you again. This was great.
1: Thank, thank you so much, Michael, us. for having us. Long-time listener, first time chatter. <laughs>
0: awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for listening. If you aren't a subscriber yet, you should totally check out some of the other episodes. So hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking for some of the top episodes, go to fullstackwhatever.com.